The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. According to tonight's special guest, the Earth and distant extraterrestrial worlds are reeling in the wake of war and ruin. A powerful insubordinate prince, personified as the dragon, the devil, and the Satan, has mounted an unsuccessful insurrection against the kingdom of heaven in a battle of unimaginable destruction. The planets in our solar system, once teeming with life, have been laid waste and left to careen in the orbits Tohubabohu, desolate and empty. After untold eons of inundated oblivion, the time has finally come to restore the terrestrial realm and appoint a new regent to govern it, Adam, the first man. This is the preamble to the story of mankind. The offspring of Adam have forgotten the patrimony and purpose of their race. Now faced with extinction at the hands of an alien adversary, it is high time for them to remember. Tonight's guest retraces the pages and will reveal the secrets of the greatest story ever told, the one in which we are all inescapably embroiled. From the galactic rebellion in the pre-Adamic past to the creation of mankind on planet Earth, the fall of the Watchers in the pre-flood world to the machinations of Luciferian forces in modern times, the unveiling of the alien presence to the final battle at Armageddon. We will unpack the synchronicity of these events with scholarly precision and it will leave you breathless on the brink of a post-human apocalypse. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it and click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Known as the modern-day Indiana Jones, Timothy Alberino is a consummate explorer. His inquisitive mind and insatiable appetite for adventure have led him all over the planet in search of lost cities, lost civilizations, hidden treasures, and legendary creatures. He is also an avid researcher and published author whose scholarly pursuits are as daring as his expeditions. After years of rigorous study, Albrino has garnered an expansive knowledge base that enables him to dissertate with authority on a wide variety of esoteric topics, including theories on alternative history, ancient mythologies, megalithic architecture, giants, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, UFOs and alien abductions, transhumanism, and emerging technologies, occult conspiracy, and Christian eschatology. And his latest book is titled Birthright, The Coming Post-Human Apocalypse and the Usurpation of Adam's Dominion on Planet Earth. His website is timothyalberino.com. Timothy Alberino joins us from Bozeman, Montana. Hello, Timothy, and welcome to Veritas. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. It is my pleasure, Timothy. A lot of stuff you discuss in this book, but uh, always curious about what brought you into these subjects that we discuss on this platform. What, what was the Eureka moment that made you a, a true researcher, a true Indiana Jones? Um, well, a lot of people are probably familiar with uh, the fact that I lived in the Amazon for a decade, uh, in the Peruvian Amazon. And it was, it was during that time, I would say, that I became interested in, generally speaking, some of the more arcane and esoteric subjects uh, of, of certainly of the, of the biblical narrative, but also in general, um, as it pertains to cryptids and, and lost civilizations and megaliths and, and, and everything, everything like that. Sorry, something happened with the button here mutiny. And the, what year was this? I'm, I'm familiar with the, the, the time you spent in the Amazon and in Peru. 
what time was this? And, and what, what really changed with you once you spent time down there? Uh, I was, um, geez, I don't remember what year it was, but um, I was, I dropped out of high school when I was 18 years old. And uh, I moved to Peru. I went to Peru. I went to the Amazon when I was 18. And then I came back briefly back to the States and then went back when I was 19. And so I was 19 years old when I really, really left. Um, in my mind, it was for good. I I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland in a, in a town called Brook Park, uh, Ohio. And so when I left, when I went to the Peruvian Amazon, in my mind, I was leaving for good. I was, it would be a, it would be at least a decade until I ever came back to the States. Now that's not what happened, but that's, that's the way that my mindset was uh, at the time. So, um, I was 19 years old. I'm 39 years old now. So you can do the math. So what was the motivation leaving high school, going to the Peruvian Amazon? Were you trying to become an initiate of, of, of nature? What was the motivation? It was complex. Um, frankly, I was, um, I was on a quest. I wanted to, I wanted to have an encounter with God, like a burning bush encounter. I'd grown up in the church and, uh, you know, I was very familiar with, uh, with the Bible and with Christianity in general, but I wanted to, to have a life altering encounter with God again, like a burning bush type mm -hmm. encounter with God. So that was the primary driver, but also, um, I didn't want to live in the suburbs of Cleveland. I wanted to broaden my horizons and, and, uh, kind of just go on a, a an adventure. Um, and, uh, see different parts of the world. And so it was a mix of, it was a mix of motivations. Why did you choose the Amazon as a, may I call it a vision quest? It was, that's kind of a long story, but, um, I actually tried to go to my, my dream at growing up as, as a teenager, my dream was to visit Scotland and Ireland. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my initial attempt at, at going on a, a journey was to, to try and, Going, I was going to go hike the Inverness Trail in, in Scotland with a with a friend of mine, and and then we were going to cross over the Channel and go to Ireland. And we had this whole trip planned out. It was a three month trip. Long, long story short, it never happened because when I landed in London, they turned us around and deported us the next day. <laughs> um, uh, they deported my friend and 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 myself, and and uh, they called me a Yankee <laughs> and deported me from England. So. Um, when I came home from that trip, I was of course distraught, depressed, and it just so happened that when I returned home, being deported from England, there was a, a fellow by the name of Alfonso, a Felix, who was a missionary. He's a Mexican guy, but he was a missionary in Peru. And my, and my father was a pastor, so he was preaching in my father's church and, uh, my my stepmother um, convinced me to go back to Peru with him, and so that's how I ended up in Peru when I was 18 for that for that month. Uh, that initial month was with Alfonso. Uh, so if I had not been deported from from England, I would not have gone to Peru. And if I had not gone to Peru, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now because I would have had a different path in my life, certainly. Uh, you know, being deported from from the UK. Why were you deported? I'm just curious. You, you're not striking us no home again. There was no reason. They they called me. Uh, the the immigration's officer was not a very pleasant woman, and obviously she did not like young American males. And uh, she called me a Yankee several times, wow. and and had open contempt for Americans, and deported us. So she didn't, you know. It's kind of a long story, but she she didn't like me very much. Let's put it that way. We didn't give her a reason to deport us. We didn't have like drugs on us or something like that. We didn't we did we didn't give her any reason to deport us. Um, it was uh, it was a uh, personal contempt, I would say, for Americans, young young I would say young white American males. <laughs> I guess she didn't like the history of the. Exit they had to take after the 13 colonies, right? 
Well, like I said, you called me a Yankee several times, so that's the only time in my life I've been called a Yankee. Let's begin with your research, The Elder Race. Let me just read this, an, an excerpt. Quote, The story of mankind begins in the beginning, but not in the very beginning. The beginning of our story marks the appearance of a new sentient species in the universe, one specifically designed to inhabit the earth. It does not mark the beginning of all other species inhabiting other worlds, nor the beginning of the earth itself, end quote. Are you saying that we had a species before us that was intellectually uh, smarter than we are now? I'm saying that there are... That uh, when th- this is, of course, within the the biblical context. My book is written within the biblical context, so I'm saying that according to that context, that there were other sentient beings inhabiting the cosmos before the creation of Adam, and those sentient beings are certainly numbered among them. Would be these entities that the Bible designates as angels uh, and sons of God, and so we were not the first sentient creatures to inhabit the universe. I take it you, do you consider yourself a religious scholar? No, I don't know. I wouldn't consider myself a scholar. I would say that I am a researcher who has a biblical worldview. I'm, I also, um, I like to read and write about uh, aspects of theology. And so uh, my book is very theological. Um, the, the through narrative in my book is a theological narrative. Um, I'm not strictly theological in my thinking. I study and, and do all, I study all kinds of things and, um, but, but the foundation of my thinking is certainly theological. It's certainly, I would say, Christian. Here's a reason for my question. I sometimes have conversations with religious scholars and a lot of them, I'm not sure if they're somewhat closed-minded, but when you discuss the possibility of life outside of this realm, you know, some people say God created the universe, but some people say, no, 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 it was only here. We were made to be on this plane only. I'm not sure if I believe that, if God is all omnipotent and is everywhere, why is it that some people just close their mind and think, that's it. It's only here and only from Neanderthal, Homo sapien, Homo sapien, sapiens to where we are. Because they have what's called an anthropocentric perspective of the universe. Uh-huh. Anthropocentric means human centric. And so, from a human centric perspective, an anthropocentric perspective, everything revolves around mankind. And again, within the biblical narrative, this is a perspective. Uh, pursuant to the biblical narrative, that everything revolves around uh, mankind, that we are the we are the primary protagonist in the story of creation, that the, the universe is centered on us. Um, and this is actually unbiblical. It's not it's it's not the correct theological perspective. Uh, the correct theological perspective is what's called a Christocentric perspective. And the Christocentric perspective is a Christ-centered perspective in which everything revolves around the Son of God. Everything was created, as the scriptures say, through him and for him and by him and in him all things consist. And so we are ancillary characters in his story. He is the primary protagonist. The universe was created for him and not for us. And so from the anthropocentric perspective, it's difficult to imagine other sentient beings inhabiting the universe, even though we know that there are such sentient beings within the biblical narrative. Um, But a lot of Christians have a hard time because they have this anthropocentric perspective and everything is anchored on the human species. Whereas if you have the correct perspective, the Christocentric perspective, and you have an understanding that anchors all things on Christ, on the Son of God, then then the existence of other sentient beings in the universe, even inhabiting other planets, other civilizations, is no problem whatsoever because you are not the center of the story. Things were happening in the universe before we were, we were here. Uh, and, and that, to me, is a much more accurate 
uh, and theologically correct perspective, the Christocentric perspective. And so that that's why so many so many Christians have a problem with the idea of extraterrestrial life, even though it's presumed in the biblical narrative. And you see, that's a very, and I'm just, I don't mean to bring my opinion to the table, but that seems to be the most sensible of all. Why close our minds and say it's only here because God only wanted us to be here? I've had that conversation probably since I was a teenager with other people, with teachers, with priests who tell me, you know, the other story, the close-mindedness. Where's that really come from? Well, it's, as I said, it's it comes from the anthropocentric perspective, and it also, um, a lot of Christians are hamstrung with a medieval theology, a medieval worldview. And, uh, and so... Christians today in the West have a Western medieval Christian worldview, which is which is not a very accurate worldview, biblically speaking. And so they 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 become hamstrung with these false uh, notions, these 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 false presumptions about cosmology and about all kinds of things. I mean, there's all kinds of um, presumptuous baggage that 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 Western Christians carry around with them that has nothing to do with the biblical narrative or uh, with um, with a a Hebrew cosmology, which is what which is of course the foundational perspective of the writers of the Bible. And so, the Catholic Church has it's has created its own. Um, it's created its own theological worldview, uh, and and a lot of people get get trapped. And not just the Catholic Church; a lot of Protestant churches have have also assimilated this particular worldview, and and so they they become very um, they become they become entrapped, or uh, as I as I said, they become hamstrung by by this particular view, and so when 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 you talk about extraterrestrial life or something something that doesn't fit comfortably into that worldview, then uh, it, it sort of discombobulates them. Now it's interesting because the, the the Catholic Church, the Vatican, let's be more specific, the the um, the priests and the bishops. Uh, and the scholars at the Vatican are 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 feverishly working right now to lay the theological groundwork for for the disclosure of extraterrestrial life, intelligent extraterrestrial life, and that's a main theme that's happening at the Vatican. I believe that the and I don't you know this is getting us into a different subject, but I believe that the um, that elements within the Vatican, within Vatican City, are aware of the extra, of an extraterrestrial presence on Earth and, uh, and are getting ready to either make an announcement or at least are preparing their theology uh, in anticipation, anticipation of such an announcement. I think they've been at this for well, decades at least when they moved their – Telescope from Castle Gandolfo because of visual pollution. They moved it, or they created one here in Arizona in Mount Graham. Uh, you probably know this. It's uh, mm-hmm. I believe it's called Lucifer. Why is it the acronym Lucifer? I don't know. It, it it's has- a big, it's a big, long, contrived yeah. name, and it's like they created this weird name so that they can call it Lucifer because Lucifer, as you said, is an acronym, and Lucifer is a device. That's attached to the telescope. It's an infrared device. Exactly. It's light, unified, blah, blah, blah. But obviously, they are interested in knowing. I mean, we've heard about Wormwood, and have, for the last 14, 15 years, I've been talking about E.T. is my brother. So there's a lot of interest, even right now as we speak, not to change the subject, but I believe there's a lot of activity taking place in the Vatican. A lot of archbishops from all over the world are there. They suspect that the the uh, the current pope will be abdicating soon. Uh, have you heard anything about this? You know, <clears throat> I don't know if the, if you've ever heard of a man named Leo Zagami. Yes, of course. Um, it's going to be with me Leo next Zagami's week. Leo Zagami is a friend of mine, and and uh, I spent some time in Rome with him, and he told me something in Rome. He's been very accurate with his predictions about uh, the Catholic Church. 
In fact, Leo's the most accurate guy I know, him and Tom Horn, as it as it pertains to predictions about the Catholic Church. And Leo told told me years ago, probably eight years ago, he told me, or seven years ago, he told me that they're ultimately going to dissolve the papacy. And what they're going to do is they're going to create a council of popes. So rather than having one pope, you're going to have several pope figures or pope-like figures, and and they're getting rid of the papacy because it's arcane, and it's not it's it's there's it's they sort of have to update the system for modern times, and and that is a council of popes. Now he wasn't sure if they're still going to call them popes or what, but but it, it appears to me that that is the direction that the Vatican is moving in. They're they're, they're creating a council rather than this, which is actually qu- quite an archaic. A form of governance. It's the Pope is a king. He's the king of Vatican City, and he's a literal king of Vatican City. So, when we think of the Pope, most people don't realize that that man is a king, and and it's a very archaic system, and they know it, and they're trying to flex with the the change of of the times and 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 to modernize. And so, uh, it appears to me that they are preparing to to create a council of popes. Now, don't forget, we already have two popes, living popes, right now. We have Bergoglio, Pope Pope Francis, and then we have a Ratzen, uh, uh, was it, is it Ratzenberg or Rat, Ratzinger, Ratzinger. Ratzinger, Pope uh, Benedict, who is still alive, and in fact has a residence in Vatican City, um, uh, quite close to Saint Peter. So, there are two popes alive right now. So if if um, if Bergoglio, if Francis steps down, if he abdicates, and an, and another pope is is elected, then you then you have three popes, um, and uh, which hasn't happened for for centuries. So I think what's going to happen is 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 um, Francis is the last pope, and we're going to see exactly what Leo Zagami predicted and what he in what in what he told me in Rome so many years ago. That, uh, that we're going to see a council of popes or a council or perhaps just the council of bishops or something. The, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church is undergoing behind the scenes, it's undergoing drastic alterations, drastic fluctuations are happening in that, in that oldest of institutions. I mean, the, the Vatican is one of the oldest institutions around. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, it goes back all the way to the fourth century, you know, with, uh, with beginning, let's say with Constantine. So, um, it's a very, very old institution. So this is a momentous thing that's happening that, that most people are not really paying attention to. Let's unpack a lot of this. And by the way, coincidentally, I will be interviewing Leo and Christy Sagami next week. Oh, how uh, about and, that? And I'll bring this up to them. <laughs> bring by it up, the way. yeah, absolutely. Tell them that I reminded. Uh, that, tell them that uh, I told you about uh, what he told me in Rome, because because Leo has been very very prescient as it pertains to uh, to the Vatican, to the Catholic Church, to the Pope. I'll definitely bring your name up. Let's unpack a lot of what you said. When you said that the other Pope, I wasn't thinking about Ratzinger because you know he abdicated. And coincidentally, this uh, Pope Bergoglio is the first Jesuit ever to be the Pope. But I was thinking mm-hmm. more of the other alleged Popes, the Great Pope, the Red Pope, and the Black Pope, who a lot of people think is uh, Pepe Ursini. You've heard that name before? Well, yes. Uh, the Black Pope has traditionally been the general of the Jesuits. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, don't forget about the Pink Pope. <laughs> Oh, there's you should a pink ask, pope you should too. Ask Leo Zagami about the pink pope, because there's also a pink pope. I've read about the red, the red one, the great one, and the black one. Didn't know about the pink one. Do you know I anything don't know about if the pink? The red one, one is uh, is the pink one, but the pink pope is the is. Uh, well, ask Leo Zagami about the pink pope. Okay. <laughs> we don't have to get into the pink pope. That's fine. That's fine. Shadows of reality. The title of one of your chapters in the book. You make reference to Plato's allegory of the cape. Metaphorically speaking, are we experiencing the same as modern humans? As you say, quote, we as the prisoners chained up in the cave are presently constrained by the perceptual impairment of our condition and, like them, are forced to see the world in shadows, end quote. How do we break free from those chains and the bonds that keep us blind from the reality of the creator 
or what the creator intended for us. Well, in my book, I, I, I used uh, Plato's metaphor of the cave to demonstrate that we have what I call perceptual cataracts. And uh, actually, the Bible, Paul in the New Testament describes our predicament, um, I think, perfectly. He says that that uh, we see as through as through a mirror dimly um, and uh, or through a glass, I should say, we see as through a glass dimly. And uh, that is that is precisely the predicament of cataracts. If you have cataracts, it's like looking through a dirty glass, a dirty windshield or something like that. Um, and when those and, and when you have cataracts in both eyes, let's say, then your your ability to perceive the world is ham is 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 hampered. Um, it's severely um, debilitated. And when those cataracts are removed, it's like people are being able to see things. People can see things that they that, that they that they hadn't been able to see before, that the world is brighter and more alive and more colorful than they had previously known because of their cataracts. And so <clears throat> I believe that um, I believe that something like string theory is true, whether it's straight, whether string theory is entirely true or not. I believe that something like tr string theory is true, that that there are there are more dimensions to reality, to physical reality than we can currently perceive, than we can presently perceive. Um, we are living within those dimensions. They're all around us, but we cannot perceive them because we have a kind of perceptual cataracts. I think that the original that the, that the original man, the, the prototypic, the, the prototypic man, um, Adam, the, the beginning of our species could could perceive the totality of created order could perceive all of these different dimensions, um, but that we've lost that ability we because we're degenerating, and um, and so like like the prisoners in Plato's allegory who are chained up facing a particular wall in the cave, and behind them there's a fire, and uh, and there are things happening in front of the fire so that. So that what these people perceive are only the shadows of that activity being cast on the wall in front of them. So they see the world in silhouette. Everything that they know about the world, their entire understanding of reality is informed only by the shadows dancing on the wall in front of them. And remember, they're constrained in, in Plato's allegory. They're constrained. And so they, they can only look at this wall to understand reality. And that is our predicament. I mean, um, you know, we can we can we can use quantum physics as an example. We cannot perceive with our eyes. We cannot perceive and understand what's happening at the quantum level. Um, we 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 simply cannot. Um, that's a world beyond our perception, but yet it's real nonetheless, and it's happening all around us. It's happening right now. And and another good example is, you know, before the invention of the microscope. Um, we didn't know about germs and viruses and, 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 uh, bacteria or anything like that. We, we didn't know why people were getting sick, for example, when they had bacterial infections, because we couldn't perceive the, the, um, the organisms that were causing those infections until we created a device that allowed us to perceive into that micro microbial world. And it and it changed our understanding when we were able to do that. And of course, we got germ theory from that. So um, I believe that that we we have perceptual cataracts that we didn't originally have perceptual cataracts. But we do now because of degeneration. And degeneration basically is another word for devolution. Uh, in reality, uh, mankind has been devolving for thousands of years, and I believe our original progenitors, our primordial progenitors, were absolutely spectacular specimens of Homo sapien. They would they would be considered superhuman today, and we are much less human than they were because we are mutated. We have genetic mutations. We have a, gen a genetic mutational load that is causing all. It's wreaking havoc. Uh, on, on our on our gene pool and on and on the species at large, and so that's what I meant when I when I was talking about that's the 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 end the allegory of the cave by Plato. It's that I believe I, I postulate that there are indeed more than the three physical dimensions and the one of time that we can perceive, 
Um, there may be as many as 10 or 11 as, as postulated in string theory. And, and again, I believe that we could at one time, we could perceive the totality, the dimensional totality of created order, but, but, but we can't anymore. Well, this begs the question. And by the way, I, I love that term, perceptual cataracts, because as you say, in the absence of knowledge, superstition prevails. Impaired perception impedes comprehension and breeds fabrication. So the question is, if we were superhuman, we have become, let's call them, as you say, X-Men, because we are mutants. Has this been contrived environmentally? There are so many facets of life now that, that, I mean, look what's happened in the last two years, what's going to happen with a lot of the people that are being born now. And I don't mean to get into the stinger that we've had for the past year and a half, but some speculate that the genetic composition of humans will change drastically in the near future, and we're merging with AI. There's no question about that. No, there's no question about that. See, you know, they're, they're, we're in a perfect storm right now, um, and we are headed towards a post-human future, a post-human paradigm, meaning the human species is going to be all but eradicated from the earth. It's going to go extinct. And uh, so this perfect storm involves a few different things that are happening concurrently. First and foremost, as I said, mankind, the human species, is devolving. It's We are not evolving. We are devolving. We are gradually becoming inferior specimens of, of, of the original prototypic human, human being, the, the, the original man. And, um, and that, that process has, is accelerating. Um, I didn't put this in my book because I didn't know it. Uh, it should, this is information that just came out in the, in the last year or two. Um, there's a, um, I'm trying to remember her name. I can't remember her name. There's a, there was a study done recently last few years and it's the, I believe it's, it was done by a couple of Harvard, a Harvard team of scientists or, or an international university level team of scientists. I wish I could tell you the names. I, I don't have the information in front of me, but they did a, 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 they did research on the, um, the sperm counts of males in the West and um, and they found that the sperm counts have been dropping drastically over the last 50 years. And in, and in fact, they 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 project based on their data, I believe I'm going to say it's the year 2030. I could be wrong. It could be uh, 2025. I don't remember. It was somewhere in there. I believe it's 2030 that by the year 2030, let's say that the sperm count of males in the West is going to go to zero, zero. That means that the human species will no longer be reproductively viable. We will not be able to make babies, not in the natural way. We will have to engineer the babies. Okay. That is because now there's a whole lot of factors that go into this, but, but one of the primary factors, the, 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 the most fundamental factor is genetic degeneration. We are devolving. And we will ultimately become reproductively inviable. Now, that devolution, that process of genetic degeneration has been greatly accelerated by exterior factors. Um, we could name all kinds of things. The chemicals in our food, the pollution in the air, all kinds of things have accelerated our degeneration and have been contributing to this crisis of of the sperm count, the declining in the, the decline in in the sperm count uh, that we are experiencing, not just in the West, all over the world, by the way, and th so that's one thing that's happening. That in itself is a crisis. Um, but at the same time, we have the development of of biological technologies. We have the development of of um, artificial intelligence, of genetic technologies. Um, nanotechnologies and uh, a host of other technologies that are being developed simultaneously. And they've all been sort of um, in their own stream. For example, the, the stream of nanotechnology and the stream of genetics have been developing concurrently, but separately for the last couple of decades. But futurists are predicting that very soon, in fact, it's already beginning to happen, that these streams, these 
these separate streams of technological development are going to begin to converge and are, in fact, converging. There is a confluence uh, between these technological streams that have been developing over the last few decades. And that is why they call the age in which we now live the hybrid age, because all of these technologies are coming together. They're becoming hybridized with one another. And ultimately what this means is that we will soon have the power, the human species will soon have the power to fundamentally alter the biological construct of our species. We will have the power to uh, consciously evolve our species into a post-human paradigm. In other words, we will soon become something other than the, than homo sapien by our own volition through the agency of our technology. This is happening again, simultaneously with this crisis of, of, uh, degeneration. So the human species is becoming reproductively inviable at the very same moment in time that we will have the technological capability to fundamentally alter our species on a genetic level and and also cybernetically and with artificial intelligence. I mean, it's absolutely uh, amazing what's happening right now. And it's and, and frankly, it's it's frightening. How is this not Contrived because when I look at, say, Japan, they're on the verge in the very near future of collapse when it comes to their own ethnic group, uh, Europe, the United States. How is this not transhumanism, singularity, hybridism? And I remember my multiple conversation with Dr. David Jacobs, and he says there's a hybrid program taking place here. If I didn't oh, yes. know any better, this that's is almost see, that's a third. That's a whole nother. Yes. Terraforming for those beings. What's your take on the possibility yeah. that there's a terraforming stage taking place right now? Uh, you know, that's a whole I'm glad you brought that up because that's a whole nother thing that's unfolding at, uh, concurrently with these with these with these other crises that we're facing is the 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 abduction program and the creation of advanced human alien hybrids who Dr. Jacobs calls whom Dr. Jacobs calls hubrids. And I absolutely agree with Jacobs work. Um, and not just Jacobs, but also, uh, you have the work of, uh, Carla Turner, Bud Hopkins, oh, yeah. the late John Mack, um, Carla Turner, Bud Hopkins. What, what you just said, uh, Dr. Carla Turner and Dr. Joe Mack both died mysteriously, in my opinion. Yes. Carla Turner died from a rapid, uh, fr from a, from a, from a very aggressive cancer that came on suddenly and, and took her out in a very short period of time. And many people, including myself, I agree that, uh, it was not natural. I think, I think sh somebody gave her a fast, uh, growing cancer and, and took her out, um, because they were the pioneers. Those four, were the pioneers in abduction research and they're the they they they're still the gold standard to this day as far as i'm concerned um and uh so you know turner and uh and hopkins and and jacobs especially and, and all of them postulated that um they did more than postulate they did they did in-depth research that i believe i would go so far as to say uh, demonstrated beyond doubt that gray aliens are real and are and are perpetrating an abduction program on the human species and and what what essentially amounts to a breeding program with the objective of creating advanced alien human hybrids that can integrate seamlessly into human society into human civilization and that have um the that have the telepathic capabilities of the greys of the aliens but look like us and so essentially they can control us and who knows what else they can do but they certainly can control us on a telepathic level and so you have these very powerful and in, and and if you read jacob's work you'll you'll find out very malevolent human hybrid beings walking around walking among us as jacob puts it the title of his book and uh and the the program has been going on since at least 
the turn of the 19th century, 19th, 20th century, and and is probably in its advanced stages at this point. You know, the, the, the research indicates, Jacob's research, his latest research indicates that that they are in the integration phase. The program is in its final stages of integration in which the hubrids, these advanced uh, human-alien hybrids, are learning how to exist on Earth, are, are, lear- are learning about life on Earth and how to do things like drive cars and, and buy groceries and interact with other human beings in a way that, doesn't, that isn't bizarre. And who knows, what is the objective? the ultimate objective again i concur with jacob's thesis that the ultimate objective is planetary acquisition as he puts it i absolutely concur i believe that the grays are are a, involved in 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 a in a the breeding program that the goal of the breeding program is ultimately planetary acquisition and that this is not the first time that they that they've done this now you said something else you you, you said terraforming and uh, and and that may be going on as well, and and that may have nothing to do with the Greys, or that may be initiated by the Greys. Uh, so that's a whole nother spoke in the wheel, so to speak, that you know that's going on with all these other things we've mentioned. And by the way, I talk about all of this, in, as you know, in my book. Yep. I was going to say, are you okay that we're opening so many Pandora's boxes here oh, today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't mind the rabbit trails because they all connect. Exactly. They do. They do. Yes. It, terrific work from Dr. Jacobs. And as time goes by, I actually find it to be more credible as time goes by because we, we've had these conversations for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you want to remain open-minded, but you think, no, that, that cannot be possibly happening. But as you see how the world turns and how we continue to de-evolve, you see what's happening above our skies. You see what's mm-hmm. happening in the last two years with the lockdowns. And it really makes you wonder, are, right. the peop- are the people, so-called people in power, are they them and they have taken over the bodies or cloned themselves in order to pursue this agenda? That's a great question. Now, I'm, I'm, willing to bet that that Jacobs would probably say no because he probably would say they're not yet that advanced in terms of their understanding of life on earth um and and uh, that would be my perspective uh, you know some years ago and and and, and Jacobs was the Mac and Turner and Hopkins all died you know back i believe uh i believe um Hopkins was the latest one to die. Hopkins was the last, right. And, and, and so they all died before the abductees were, were beginning to report the, the integration, um, let's say the, the integration phase of the abductions, right? So it was really Jacobs who was still, who was still around and is still around today to document the this this probably what is the final phase of, of of the project which is the integration and so we rely heavily on jacob's work and and rightly so because i i think you know david jacobs is was brilliant and is brilliant and so and did and his work is unimpeachable as far as i'm concerned and so um it's really according to jacob's work um the integration phase has only been going on for what like a decade and so it takes a long time for these hybrids, these advanced hybrids, these hubrids to learn all the basic things that you and I learned growing up as human beings. I mean, they have to learn, not only learn our language because they speak mainly telepathically. That, As you know, that's the primary mode of communication among ali- the alien species, all alien species, by the way. And I believe that the human species this is a little side side note, but the human species was originally a telepathic species, but we've, again, due to degeneration, we've lost that ability. Um, but, but these, these hubrids have to learn to communicate not only in English, but in every language on earth that they're, you know, that they're integrating into every culture, the language of every culture that they're integrating on earth into on earth. They have to learn that language. They have to learn each one of those cultures. They have to be able to function in a way that isn't suspicious. So it, it takes a long time to climb that social ladder to become a congressman or president or, or the CEO of a company 
I mean, that's a huge learning curve. And in my estimation, I think it would take a lot longer than just a decade. I think it would take a couple decades, a few decades for Hubridge to get to the point to where they could become a senator, let's say, a U.S. senator, and, and, and be, in, be pulling the levers of power. Um, you know, the, 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 the Hubrids and Jacobs work, his last book, uh, Walking Among Us, were, were just learning how to drive a car. The, the most advanced ones that he documented were just learning uh, how they were just grappling with the idea of, of how to use currency and how to buy groceries, how to use a refrigerator, how to turn a television on. So I do not believe that the Hubrids have integrated yet into the highest echelons of society. Now, that does not mean that, that there are human components, that there are human beings, factions among our own species who have allied themselves with the gray aliens and their agenda. That is possible, especially in the secret societies and, uh, and in the occult. That is very possible. And the reason why I believe that's so possible is because I, I personally believe that the Third Reich, that the Nazis at the, uh, at the highest levels of the occult the Vril Society and so forth were in contact with non-human beings who were helping them develop technology. And so um, it would not, in my mind, be um, too far of a stretch to think, to contemplate the notion that human beings at some level, some faction, are in league with malevolent extraterrestrials. You keep opening doors. That's great. You talk about the Nazis. I talk about the Ananurb all the time and how in the 30s they were going expeditions all over the world, Tibet and many other places. I wonder what they were able to retrieve that allowed them to develop certain technologies that they were on the cusp of maybe even conquering them at the end of the war. And they, you know, they lost the war, but I think they won the peace and via Operation Paperclip. They're still here. What about yes. Antarctica with uh, Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump? Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, uh, you know the Germans hope at the end of the war, as uh, the war is drawing to its conclusion, the Germans were getting the bejesus bombed out of them. I mean, you know, we were it was Dresden, and, and we were bombing, we were we were bombing the hell out of them at the end of the war, and that that's really what brought the war to a conclusion was our bombing campaigns. We were just absolutely destroying their military and industrial infrastructure. And so the tote organization, um, the Nazi tote organization, which was kind of their army corps of engineers, they were beginning to build underground bases and, and bring their manufacturing underground. But it was too little too late uh, for the Nazis to be able to endure those bombing campaigns. Plus we were bombing civilians and they were losing the will to fight. But um, uh, but, uh, the, the Germans, they were hoping that Hitler had a wonder weapon, a, a, a wonder weapon that would, that would, uh, that would win the war, uh, at the last moment. And, and there was speculation, I believe, even, even among the generals, uh, the, the allied generals that, that, that Hitler did have a wonder weapon and they wondered if it might've been the saucers and the Foo Fighters that were, that were, tailing our, our fighters and our bombers during their campaigns. Um, and we know that, that the Nazis were in the, in the process of developing some kind of saucer. And certainly they were developing the Der Gleich, the, the, the bell, whatever that was being used for. Lots of speculation around the bell. But, um, but we also know that whatever Hitler was developing, he, wasn't, he didn't finish it in time. Exactly. Because he would have deployed it. There's no question. Hitler would not have hesitated to deploy any weapon that he had in his arsenal to win the war. Um, I think that 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 there's no question about that and certainly would have deployed the atomic bomb. And, of course, the Germans were developing the, the atomic bomb. Um, they were also developing rockets. Uh, that's where we got our rocket program. Our rocket program come came from the Nazis, as you well know. Um, and so if the, if the Germans had been given a little more time, if the allies had delayed their invasion, D-Day, the D-Day invasion, uh, Hitler might have not only, not only had enough time to develop an atomic bomb, but attach it to a long range missile. And, uh, you know, just to, to say nothing of 
Dirk like the bell or the saucers that he was developing, um, he would have been able to, to nuke London. And so, uh, it would have been a very different world that, that we're living in now had the Nazis uh, won uh, the war. It would have been an overt Nazi victory rather than a, a, a covert in some ways, let's say in some ways, a covert Nazi a victory. And of course, the Nazis lost the war. But in some ways, in some ways, uh, they their their machinations persisted through the war because of Project Paperclip, which the Americans and the Russians mainly adopted some of even some of their sinister programs that were going on. And we and we further developed them, as again, as you well know. And uh, and so we ran into saucers in Antarctica, uh, Admiral Byrd's uh, um, uh, Operation High Jump. They ran into saucers. The question is, whose saucers were they? Were they the Nazi saucers? Certainly, when we went down there to unseat the Nazi presence, the Nazis had a sub base there, and um, there's no question about that. They had a U-boat uh, a base there, and uh, but the question is, did they also have some of their saucers there that were under development, or did we encounter a an extraterrestrial faction? Uh, I don't think anybody really knows, but uh, we certainly went down there to unseat Nazis, and we got our butts handed to exactly. us. Exactly, as, as, as your audience, I'm sure, is well aware. Definitely, and we were supposed to be there for two months, and it lasted two weeks only. Maria Maria Orsic, you probably have heard that name. I remember the, the early, yeah. yes, exactly. In the early 2000s, there was a gentleman with the name of. Maximilien de Lafayette. I don't know if you remember that name. No, he do was not, a, I do not recognize that name. He was a researcher, really got into the Maria Orsic, uh, the woman who originated and created uh, Earth's first UFOs, but he all of a sudden disappeared. But uh, Maria Orsic channeled a lot of information that was given to the Nazis, and this is the part that I've always wondered. How, did they escape knowing that they couldn't win, or did they escape because they could bring a new life, new world, and maybe that's how Hitler escaped as well, through the Vatican all the way down to Brazil and Argentina. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Nazis had U-boats, so the Nazis could have, and their U-boats were far, they, they were far surpassing anything we had, the Allies. So the Nazis could have easily escaped in the U-boats. It would not have been a, a comfortable journey, <laughs> but they could have escaped in U-boats, and they did. Um, we know that U-boats surfaced in Argentina and Chile and other places, and certainly Antarctica. So, so the Nazis had the technology to escape. Um, now, you know, the Maria Orsic, that whole affair was very interesting, the Brill Society, because they were trying to make contact with the Vril, And of course, the Vril goes back to Edward. What was his name? Uh, Edward. Uh, I always forget his second name. Uh, 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 I can't remember his name. The author of the the, the book um, about the Vril, and I'm I'm my my memory is failing me here. I read it. Uh, it's a, a book about the Vril. It was supposed to be a sort of a fiction, but lots of people wonder if it was actually a nonfiction. And the Nazis were and wondering if the Nazis had indeed contacted the Vril. Um, You're talking about Edward anyway, Bulwer Lighton. Right. Okay, that's right. Yeah, uh, and uh, and so. The question is, did the Nazis actually make contact with the Vril? Who were the Vril? Were the Vril the gray aliens and, or were they a different faction? But what's really interesting about the, the, the occult uh, lore, let's call it, surrounding the Nazis, especially as it pertains to their contact with extraterrestrials, is that when they contacted the extraterrestrials, as the lore goes, as the legend goes, they didn't get some kind of a a supernatural or spiritual information about how humanity can better itself or or information about the cosmos no they got schematics they received schematics according to the legend right so they received a schematics i believe in the form of uh, the teutonic code and then also in the uh, – what was the other code? There was two different ones, I believe. Uh, one of them was like an ancient Teutonic code. And when deciphered, what they received was schematics on how to build presumably saucers and, and the bell, um, which I find absolutely intriguing. Uh, and, and I actually – nobody, of course, knows whether or not the stories are true, whether the legends are true. But I, I, I believe that, that, that they are. Or at least they're based on on truth, and that in fact 
the Nazis did receive schematics and they began to develop. They began to build uh, the schematics to, to, to build the craft that the schematics uh, were for. And I, and I think that those were the, the saucers. Um, now, why in the world, let's say if it was the Greys, why in the world the Greys or the Vril would give the Nazis schematics is, is, is who knows why they didn't just show up and just give them the saucers if they, if they wanted them to win the war. It's a very bizarre story. But there's enough, I think, anecdotal evidence indicating that the Nazis did indeed have schematics to build flying saucers uh, to, to verify the story in my mind. I don't know what you think about that, but in my mind, I, I, it, it, it smacks of truth. Uh, the, the whole Nazi real society, um, alien contact, let's say. I'm open-minded to all possibilities, but I remember having a private conversation with a, a native American person here in the United States. He summoned me in a certain place in, in Arizona to just give me information And I remember I was patted down by some people wearing black and they wanted to make sure that I didn't have any recorder or guns or what have you. Huh. But he told me that uh, the Ananurba is still alive and there are people, a lot of natives around the world are members of, of them. And, and, and they go around the world retrieving information from certain places. And if you look at the megaliths around the world, you know that we cannot replicate that technology even today. Pyramids, uh, Baalbek, you, we can name all of them, the Moai in, in, in Easter Island. So the question is, if they have that information, uh, the, the Nazis, why, and as you said, the schematics, and if what Maria Orsic said was true, then she was channeling this information. Take a look at, at uh, Jules Verne. This this individual uh, Edward uh, Bulwer Lytton, who wrote that book in 1871, it's a novel, but it makes you wonder: How did these people like Jules Verne get information that right now we have submarines, we have rockets? How did right. they know this a hundred years ago, 150, right. 200 years? There, there must be a, a society, a secret society that has been. The custodians of secret knowledge for generations, that's the only answer that I can give you. And I think that that is the correct answer. And the reason why I say that's the correct answer is because of the, the let's say, the, 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 the esoteric legends and knowledge that have been encapsulated throughout the ages in some of our most, in some of our mythological stories like Osiris, the story of Osiris, which Osiris represents the the vouchsafe uh the vouchsafing of secret knowledge through the ages that's what that story represents and, and very briefly um as your listeners are probably aware you mean the sister uh, osiris, the wife who was broken into pieces and put together right, osiris osiris was uh you know his his, his evil brother set uh um you know and i'll cut out all the details because it's kind of a long story his evil brother set um killed him by by Um, by uh, tricking him to get into a coffin that he had made exactly for the proportions of Osiris's body and, and sealed the coffin when Osiris got into it and then threw the coffin into the ocean, into the Nile, into the, into the uh, Nile, which carried it out to the ocean, to the Mediterranean. And uh, of course, Osiris died and his body was taken the, on the currents of the Mediterranean and it, and it ended up in Byblos, which was a Phoenician city and it's very important most people uh overlook this this part of the myth that it was it landed in it landed on the shores of of biblos a phoenician city and uh, and it got caught up in a in a tree a uh, some some sources say an achaia tree and others a, a different kind of a tree i'm trying to think of the name of the other kind of tree it starts with a t can't remember it tamarick or something like that And um, and the branches of the tree enveloped the coffin so that the coffin was wholly consumed in the trunk of the tree. And the king of 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 uh, uh, the the king of that of Byblos came and saw the tree and and it was such an interesting tree that he wanted to. And I'm cutting out a lot of details here. He wanted it to uh, to to uh, to take to cut it down and take it to the artisans so that they could carve it into a pillar for his palace such an uh, a beautiful tree and he had that done and so the 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 body of osiris uh was enveloped within ultimately within the a pillar 
in the palace of this Phoenician king. And and Osiris, uh, Osiris's wife, who's also his sister, Isis, went looking for the body of Osiris and uh, and ended up in Byblos and in, in this king's palace, in this Phoenician king's palace, and discerned discerned that the body of Osiris was within this pillar. But wasn't and he so, caught in 14 pieces? Not yet. No, not yet. And so she was able to retrieve the body of Osiris. Now, understand at this juncture in the story, the body of Osiris represents the body of knowledge, secret knowledge from the world before the cataclysm, from the antediluvian, the pre-flood world. That's what the body of Osiris represents because Osiris was an antediluvian king. And he, it was the time, it was the golden age uh, that Osiris represents, the time when the gods dwelt among men, men and shared their knowledge with mankind. And so oh, the body of Osiris represents the corpus, the body of lost secret knowledge from the time when the gods dwelt among men. That's what Osiris represents, his body. And so I, Isis went to retrieve the body. She found the body. She brought it back to Egypt, set, uh, ultimately got a hold of the body, and then cut it up into 13 pieces and distributed those pieces all over the place. Uh, and that represents how the knowledge of the golden age was lost and ended up being distributed among different societies, different occult societies. And so, you know, the, the knowledge was not no longer homogeneous. It was now it was now distributed all over the world, bits and pieces of the knowledge of the golden age knowledge from the gods. And the great working of the occult, the great working of the of the Masons and of the occult, the different uh, factions all over the earth, the secret societies, is to first and foremost vouchsafe the knowledge to be custodians of their portion of the body of Osiris, and 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 to to custodian the secret knowledge, and then ultimately the great working is to bring the lost knowledge together, the body of Osiris, bring it back together, reconstitute it. And bring about another golden age, just like Isis went around the world and found the the, the missing pieces of of Osiris's body. She couldn't find the phallus, of course, so she had to she had to construct a golden phallus. And when she had all constructed all, when she had constructed the phallus, she was able to reconstitute the body of Osiris, bring him back to life long enough to copulate with him. And then to become inseminated by Osiris and and to uh, and to bear him a child, Horus, who was the reincarnation, if you like, of Osiris, bringing Osiris back into the world through Horus, which is which represents a um, which represents the resurrection, the reconstitution of the golden age and the time when the gods dwelt among men. That's what that story represents. And so the secret societies have been have been the custodians of pre-flood, pre-cataclysm knowledge, the, the antediluvian knowledge from the golden age. Each one of these secret societies uh, being the custodian of some facet of knowledge um, that they want to bring together and, and cause a, a reemergence, a resurrection. A, another golden age. Um, and I mentioned the Phoenicians and the Phoenicians, why, why the Phoenicians are so important is because the Phoenicians were a secret society. In fact, they were the original secret society in the post-flood context. And the Phoenicians, that's why the Phoenicians are such a mysterious civilization. They were uh, the the great masons, the great stonemasons of the ancient world, but not only were they the great stonemasons, they were they were the 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 uh, also the keepers of knowledge pertaining to language and writing. Um, that's that's where we get the phonetics from, and that's ultimately they are the base of our language. And also, they were the great seafarers. They were the great navigators of the ancient world. And so, the Phoenicians are this mysterious ancient civilization, from whom all the other secret societies have their origin 
And again, remember that it was according to the myth of Osiris that it was that the that the body of Osiris, again, which represented the corpus of ancient knowledge of pre-flood knowledge, golden age knowledge, landed in Byblos, the Phoenician city, and was and was uh, vouchsafed in the palace of the Phoenician king was. And, and, and so that is uh, an indication that the Phoenicians were the keepers of the ancient knowledge. And from the Phoenicians, uh, all these other secret societies have their origins and began. And of course, we all know Hiram Abiff. Hiram Abiff was a Phoenician mason uh, and uh, the, the greatest and, and, and really the, the founder of the, of the Masonic order. Now, hold it right there because we have to break uh, both segments we have to take a one and only break. But when we come back, I want to continue discussing this. See, you're opening so many doors, uh, and I love it. But the Phoenicians made it to the New World in the Americas before oh, yes. Columbus. A lot of people don't know about that. Oh, and yes. Another similar story, Hypatia. How did Hypatia die? She was brutally murdered by a mob of Christian fanatics. They pulled her from her carriage on a street in Alexandria, dragged her to a church, stripped her naked, beat her to death, and tore off her limbs with seashells and burned her remains. And I'm always wondering, with all the feminist movement that we have now, I never see any of them talking about Hypatia. Don't you find that interesting? I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not really familiar with that story. Yeah, Hypatia. So you, you'll have to enlighten me on the other side of the break. Absolutely. How can people buy the book? And you have more than one and all your work. Uh, my book is called Birthright, and you can find it uh, on Amazon. Go to Amazon.com, type in Birthright, or type in Timothy Albrino. You'll find my book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I also have a YouTube channel. I do a lot of stuff on YouTube, so you can find some lectures by me and some other interviews and so forth. On my YouTube channel, it's just Timothy Albrino. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well. Timothy Albrino on, on all those platforms. Wonderful. One more hour to come with Timothy Albrino. This is Mel Hasselrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store. For Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.